Now hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon, Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. Before we get into our text of scripture this morning, I'd like to bring up Pastor Joshua Nagal. Uh, come on up, Joshua. I'm going to have you come up here. Uh, if you don't know Joshua, Joshua is originally from Kenya. He now has dual citizenship in Kenya and in the United States. And Pastor Joshua and I have been friends for going on at least 15 years now. Uh, Joshua leads Fishers of Men Ministries that serves Kenya by building and operating two schools that have over 750 kids enrolled. Uh, Fishers of Men feeds them, educates them, clothes them. Um, our members currently sponsor 87 of these kids on a monthly basis, and we would love for you to join us and, and support them as well if you don't already. Fishers Men has drilled over 20 water wells in villages that don't have access to clean water. They also use these wells to irrigate fields to enable the people to plant crops in places that otherwise are too dry to produce consistent yields. On top of all of that, Fishers of Men continues our ministry here in the Quad Cities of making disciples and educating pastors and planting churches, and they've planted 12 churches throughout Kenya. Last year, we gave over $21,000 to this work, and I've been there a couple times and plan on returning next year to continue training pastors and preaching the gospel. And Joshua is preparing to leave this week, this week of all weeks. I looked it up. It's 70, 70 degrees there right now, okay? 
He is no fool. He knows exactly when he needs to go, all right? So I'm going to ask the, any, the elders and elder candidates to come up. We're just going to pray for Joshua this morning. As uh, that's, It's a brutal flight. It's about 16 hours to get there, and it is not easy. And then you get jet lag, and then on top of all that, you get there, and you're, you're supposed to kind of hit the ground running. And uh, so it's difficult. It's getting no easier as my brother continues to get a little older. And so we want to pray for him this morning that he would uh, have a fruitful trip uh, and for the next few weeks here coming up. So let's pray for him. Father God, we thank you for our brother Joshua. We thank you for the grace that you've given him. We thank you that he's a part of our church. And Lord, we thank you for just the blessing upon blessing that you've done upon this ministry in Kenya. We know that the harvest is ripe there in Kenya and we want to see more and more people come to know you. We want to see the poor lifted up out of their poverty. We want to see them, uh, the lost saved. We want to see the Christians discipled so they're um, not just consumers, but they become disciple makers themselves. We thank you for the work that just the ministry has done all across Kenya. We thank you for the schools and the water wells and just the example that you have set there, uh, uh, really a cities set on hill, that there is bright lights shining in Kenya and we want to see that, that light gets even brighter. We want to spread around the entire nation and spread through that entire continent, Lord God. I pray for Joshua now as he's going to embark on this, uh, this really arduous journey to go and serve you again. I pray that you'd keep him healthy, keep him safe, all of the sickness and the bugs that, that travel around during this time of year and specifically when he's over there, we just ask that you keep him uh, free and protected from. We pray that you would also um, enable him to be fruitful while he's over there and pour into the men and women that he needs to pour into for your gospel to continue to advance there in Kenya. We pray for his wife and family at home um, that they, you would keep them safe. We thank, thank you that they're a part of a missional community and that you would protect them while he's gone. Lord God, we just ask above all things that you would be exalted through this trip to Kenya and that your ministry would go forth and that your gospel would shine really bright. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. and amen. All right, love you, brother. <clears throat> all right. Well, if you are just joining us this morning, we're just going to pick right back up where we left off. Uh, about a month or so ago, or about six weeks ago, before we started the season of Advent, and we're going verse by verse through our study in the Gospel of John, and today we will study the first 17 verses in John's 13th chapter. So let me pray for us again, and then we can get going this morning. God, we, we are thankful that we do have a warm place with a roof over our head this morning to worship you. Thank you for all the sacrifice for the worship team and the snow plows and the servants out trying to salt the walks and do all the things that make this possible. Um, man, it, it's all just an evidence of your grace, and we're really, we're really thankful that you could get us here safely this morning. We could worship you um, in spirit and in truth. We ask that you would be here, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me, that your people would hear your word as you speak to us uh, through this text of scripture this morning. We will continue on to, to pray for the sick in our church. We pray for Tona Dean, Lord God. We ask that you would heal her body and uh, that you would be the God that healeth thee, that you would, um, yeah, just speak to her body and, and cause it to operate the way that you've called it to operate. Same with Isla Galliard. We're thankful for all the victories and all the healing that you've already done in her little body. And we pray that you would continue this good work into the new year. And any others that uh, I'm unaware of, I know we've got plenty of kids that 
you know, got the flu and everything else going around, we pray that you would heal their bodies as well. Father, we thank you for being a God that just attends to us, that listens to us, that we get to come to your throne of grace and ask bold, bold um, and big prayers of you. And so we expect great things from you this year. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I have said before that in the Gospels, Jesus is always playing 4D chess. And what I mean by that statement is that there is always more going on in his words and actions than what meets the eyes and ears. His actions and words often have a double meaning, if you will, and today we're going to see uh, that play out as well. Jesus is going to give us a beautiful and yet terrifying example of what it looks like to be one of his followers. But he's also going to do something much deeper and give us a foreshadowing of what he's going to do for us in a few short days in our text, a few short days before he goes to the cross. So let's look at the example Jesus sets for us first, and then we'll look at the foreshadowing second. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, now remember this phrase he'd been saying all throughout the gospel, my hour's not yet here, my time has not yet come, my hour is not yet here, my time has not yet come. When they wanted him to do fancy, famous things, he said, my hour is not here, my time has not yet come. And then when he gets to the end of his ministry, where he knows he's about to be betrayed and crucified, now all of a sudden Jesus begins to say, my hour is here. My time has come. So when he's referring to his hour, he's referring to both his death and his resurrection and his exaltation. Really, the hour is why he came. He came, he didn't come just to heal the sick. He didn't come just to feed the poor. He came to die as a substitute for us. So Jesus begins here and he says, his hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father. And he says this beautiful statement. Having loved his own who were in the world, John writes this for us, having loved his own who were in the world, speaking primarily of his disciples, the sheep that the Father had given him, he loved them to the end. Or he loved them all the way to the end of his ministry. He, he fulfilled his love for them. There, there's not going to be anything more loving that Jesus can do for them that he's not going to do for them on the cross. This is what love looks like. Jesus is about to display his type of love to his disciples. And surprisingly, it's not just going to be a bunch of beautiful poetry, right? It's not going to be a Hallmark card. It's not going to be words, right? It's not just going to be feels. Jesus' love is displayed by loving actions. And that is what love is, right? Love in words is kind of an easy thing. But love and action is a dreadful and difficult thing. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, 
Simon's son to betray him. So we have Jesus's ministry and Jesus's plan, but here we see that great antithesis, right? That we saw from the very beginning in the, in the book of Genesis that God is working and Satan is trying to destroy and straight, Satan is trying to tear down. Satan is trying to counterfeit. Jesus is doing this great act of loving service for his people and now we have Satan infiltrating the disciples and coming into the heart of Judas Iscariot. Jesus knows exactly what Judas is going to do. And Jesus is not going to be surprised by Judas's betrayal. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. We need to maybe highlight that and circle that one more time. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. All things in the Greek means all things means everything is in the hand of Jesus. Here's where things begin to get really interesting this morning. Jesus has already told us in John that he and the Father God are one. That the Son has always been with God. The Creator God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We use the word Trinity to describe God. He is three and he is one. When God the Son was born of a woman and came to this earth from heaven, he added humanity to his divinity. Right? Mankind could not save himself. Since Adam's fall, we have all been born in sin, born with what theologians call original sin, that sin that is passed down from our fathers. It's in our veins. Well, Jesus, his father was God. So Jesus was not born with original sin. He was born without sin. And Jesus came to regain for us what Adam lost in the fall. Jesus came as our representative. He was the unfallen man. He was the perfect man who then lived a perfect life. He resisted sin and he resisted temptation at all areas of his life. He was born without sin and he never committed sin his entire life. Now because of that perfect obedience, God gave Jesus his rightful inheritance. What was his rightful inheritance? All things. This verse states it really simple. Jesus earned all things by the rights of who his father was and by the rights of his perfect obedience. All things in heaven and on earth belong to Jesus. And after Jesus is killed and rises from the dead to be seen by over 500 witnesses, Jesus ascends back to the father to sit at his right hand on his rightful throne. And we say around here, Jesus's throne is the control room of the universe. If you work in a factory Right, You work in a nuclear power plant or something, there's a control room, and from that control room, you can flip switches, you can do things that run the rest of the plant, that keep everything else on, right? You call Mediacom right now, my number's down, as long as the power line's not out, they can flip switches and do things to reset your stuff, right? There's a control room for things. Well, Jesus' throne is the control room of the universe. Nothing happens without his approval, without his consent. Jesus is orchestrating his mission from the right hand of God even now. So, Jesus' throne is the most powerful spot in all of creation. From it, he rules the world. 
From it, he rules the nations, Psalm 2 tells us. Think about it. What's the most powerful spot in our country? It might be the Oval Office, right? I'm not sure if it's the Oval Office anymore, but it might be. It could be Obama's living room. I don't know, right? It might be the Oval Office, but from that spot, the president governs the nation, right? That spot, the Oval Office, might be the most powerful spot on earth currently, Well, from Jesus' throne, he rules the nations. No man, and he is a man, no man has ever possessed more power than Jesus Christ possesses right now. Now, this thought might terrify you. Lord Acton, a 19th and 20th century British historian, has famously said, quote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, this statement is generally true. It's true because of the reality of what we call, Christians call, original sin. That every man or woman, boy or girl, is born inherently sinful. So when you add power to a sinful person, that person is likely to use that power in sinful ways that can bring about a lot of pain and suffering in our world. The founders of our own country knew this. This is why they set up our country with multiple levels of government, local, state, and federal, with checks and balances and separation of powers so that no one man could get all the power to make all the decisions for the rest of our country. Now, let me ask you this this morning. If you were to wake up tomorrow and be given the opportunity to rule the nations for a day, what would your first act of power be? Now, that question might be just a little too far-fetched for you to wrap your head around, so let me bring it down to something that is far more likely. If you were to walk into a room and you were to find yourself to be the most powerful and influential person in the room, how should you behave? What should you do? How should you lead? Think about it. This is no doubt happens for some of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room. You've walked into a room and you are the best athlete on the team. You've walked into a room and you are the smartest kid in the class. You walk into a room and you are the mom or the dad, right? You are the top salesman in the company. You're the boss. You are the leader. How should you wield and display your power and authority? What do you do? How do you lead? Well, Jesus shows us in our text today. He said this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God to the control room of the universe, he rose from supper. Why did he have to rise? Because they had, little, they had low tables. They reclined on their elbow and kicked their feet back and they laid down and eat supper. I don't know why we don't do this. <laughs> why chairs? Laying down, eating, that sounds like something nice right well he rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments he took his outer robe off 
Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. This picture of Jesus is just arresting for me. Jesus takes off his robe, and in one sense, he puts on an apron. He ties it around his waist. He takes the garb of a servant. Jesus here shows us that power in itself is not a bad thing. Power and authority are necessary things. They are necessary to get things done. You need power to get things done. It's not enough to have a snowblower. If you don't have the power to run the snowblower, you're out of luck, right? Power and authority are necessary things. We aren't meant to be people who shy away from places of power and authority. The exercise of power and authority are actually inevitable in our world. And we need to see here that our personal level of power and authority is given to us by God in his providence, wherever we're at in life. So here we have Jesus. He looks around the room. He realizes that he is the most powerful man in the room. He recognizes that God had given all things into his hands. And what does he do with his power? He takes the form of a servant. He humbles himself puts on an apron, and begins to serve those under his authority. Verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin. I imagine this part, this is where the disciples start getting uncomfortable. He pours water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, let me just say, feet are nasty. Like sandals should be a privilege and not a right. <laughs> Have you ever seen a picture of LeBron James's feet, right? Google it later. It's disgusting, <laughs> right? Feet are nasty. They are smelly. They are gross. So what Jesus does here is far beneath his station in life. This seems completely inappropriate. This overthrows common cultural practices. This is absolutely beneath him to do this. It's the work of a servant, the lowest servant, the lowest slave on the totem pole was reserved for washing people's feet. Now here we have the most powerful man who has ever walked this planet, puts on a service uniform and washed his disciples' feet here. What a picture. God in flesh, the foot washer. What a scene. Now there's just something deeply unnerving about this. Right? Peter is watching it all play out. <laughs> I love Peter. And Peter is like, what are you doing? You are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. This is so far beneath you. Don't do this gross and menial thing to anyone. Stop, Jesus. Stop what you're doing. So when Jesus gets to Peter, and, and Peter says the thing out loud that everyone else is probably thinking, but is too embarrassed to say, thank God for Peter. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter. Now I imagine Peter is like, washing that dude's feet, he's washing that dude's feet, and he's looking down like, he's gonna wash my feet. And Peter's like, 
My feet are nasty, boss. We, we, you're, not, you're not doing that. I know what I stepped in on the way coming in here. Jesus, no. I got something on the bottom of my foot. No. He's getting nervous about this. He says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, you're going to serve me? You called me to follow you, and now all of a sudden you're going to wash my feet? Lord, what are you doing? Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but after will, afterward you will understand. Here's what I mean when I say that two things are going on. Jesus is playing 4D chess. There's what he's doing and there's what's underneath what he's doing. There's the example he's setting for leadership and what to do with your power and what to do with your authority. But then there's also something deeper going on that's a foreshadowing that they will only understand once Jesus has died on the cross for them. See, now, if this was just what's going on in the surface level, Jesus wouldn't have said that. Peter, you don't understand it. When Jesus is washing Peter's feet, everybody understands what's going on, right? You need to be a servant. You need to go first. That's very easy to understand. When a person in power is doing something so humiliating, okay, we lead with humility. That's easy to understand. What they didn't understand was what this was foreshadowing, what this was pointing to. This event is like a time-released capsule that will only go off after they see Jesus die on the cross and then they will understand its fullest meaning. Verse 8. Peter said to him, you, you ain't washing my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We'll get to that later. Simon Peter said to him, <laughs> I love Simon, man. I love Simon. He's a quick study, right? I was wrong. Okay. All right, you can't wash my feet. If you don't wash my feet, I can't be a part of you. Want to be a part of you? All right, cool. Wash my whole body. <laughs> like, I'm yours. Make me clean. Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Here's where the disciples go, oh my gosh. He's such a tryhard, always. <laughs> always. One up at everybody. Foot, foot, foot. Wash everything. Right? No, Peter. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Obviously, you take a bath in the morning or take whatever, and your body's clean, but you're wearing sandals, dusty, dirty, grimy streets, so you can arrive to your destination fully clean with filthy feet. Says, you don't need to wash except for his feet, but it's completely clean. And you are clean, hmm. but not every one of you. We'll get to that later. For he knew who was to betray him, the unclean one. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments... And resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. 
So I am your teacher and I am your savior. I am your king. If I then, your Lord and teacher, the most powerful man in all the universe, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, there are many churches and traditions that have kind of instituted this practice on the Thursday before Easter, and they do a foot washing ceremony. And I think that could be great, help people remind things. It really would concern me. I'd get really nervous about that. Y'all know I got a problem with feet, okay? I don't know about this. But I don't think Jesus here is instituting a sacrament. I don't think he's instituting a new, uh, you know, a thing that we're meant to practice in principle, Right? Or it's something we are meant to practice in principle, not specific application. We're start, meant to start a specific foot washing team. <laughs> it could be an interesting way to, you know, could we get at it to the membership process? We could do something like that. No. All right. So here is what Jesus is teaching. Verse 15. For I have given you an example. See, that's it. It's an example. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So there's two things that I want us to see from this, two principles or examples. First, if you want to go high, you must first go low. If you want to go high, you must first go low. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who goes low, God will lift up. Listen, the way of the world is the strong eat the weak. Not so in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, the strong serve the weak. The strong exercise their power to protect, serve, and love the weak. Again, this is an example of love. It's not just an example of service. Love is service. Jesus ties them both together here. Our country and our culture love to talk about love. The only problem is when they're talking about love, they're primarily talking about feelings. And feelings don't always accompany love. In service, right? I doubt Jesus is just loving this foot washing stuff. Right? But he loves the people. And so his love is acted out in service. Listen, if you find yourself today without much power or without much authority, maybe you're young and you find yourself in a humble state of affairs, the way out isn't the way our culture says you should get out through envy and strife or scratching and clawing your way out. No, your way, is to your way out is to truly humble yourself, take the form of a servant and serve others as a way of life. But people will take advantage of me. If you're truly serving for God's glory and not yours, no one can take advantage of you. See, Jesus himself is serving Judas here. He washes Judas' feet, well aware that he is serving a man who will give himself over to Satan and betray him to his death. Don't miss this. Jesus doesn't skip Judas, right? Mine, 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 not mine. 
right? Jesus doesn't do that. He still washes Judas's feet. Don't miss this. Out of fear of being betrayed or fear of taking, being taken advantage of, don't pull back from the identity of a servant that Christ has given you. Being a servant is kind of like a superpower. Nobody can take advantage of you if you're a, super, if you've got, if you're a servant, right? This week, this, we, got, we have some new neighbors that moved into our neighborhood, and uh, uh, I didn't know it, but I'm out snow blowing yesterday, and I look over, or whenever it started, to, to Monday or Tuesday, whenever it started, right? And I look over, and, and nobody's out. I'm like, what's going on? I ask my kids, oh, yeah, they went to Disney World. And I'm like, oh, no, they did not, <laughs> right? Didn't, didn't tell anybody, just went to Disney World, right? Gone all week, and I'm like, oh, I know what this means. If I, if I don't plow, if I don't snow blow, then they're going to have a six-foot mound that's frozen solid when they get back from Disney World and not even be able to pull into their parking spots, right? Well, what is it? Listen, was I a little frustrated? Absolutely. Was I like, woohoo, I'm the identity of a servant. Can't wait to do this. <laughs> no, but I realized that God, every gift is from the Father, good, bad, and the ugly, and I'm a character in his drama, and he's made me a servant, and guess what? If there's a person next door that needs servant, I don't need to pray about it. I need to put more gas in the snowblower. I know one of the things I hear in my house a lot full of little kids is, but that's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's called grace. Unearned favor from God. Kids, when you bless your siblings instead of curse them, you are following Jesus' example. When you clean up a mess of toys that you didn't create, you are following Jesus' example. Parents, when you clean up a mess or 10,000 that you didn't create for the millionth time, that day you are using your power and your authority that was given to you from God the way that Jesus did. You are going low like Jesus and Jesus who sees everything we do when no one else does will exalt you. Now, as an employee, when you stoop down to pick up that piece of trash and throw it away instead of stepping over it like everyone else has, you are going low. Well, that's not in my job description. It is if you're a follower of Jesus. We're, we want to renew all things for the glory of God. Proverbs twenty two nineteen says, quote, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. This proverb is teaching that if you devote yourself to a craft or to an industry and you become skillful in it, success and recognition will often accompany it. Is it a guarantee? No, it's not a guarantee. It's a proverb. Most, a lot of the times it happens. I've recently been reading the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And he says that his, when he was young, his father taught him this scripture. And Franklin, in spite of only having a formal education up until 10 years old, devoted himself to reading and working with the printing press until he was both classically educated. He taught himself to read Latin, Greek, and French. And he became an expert in his craft, the printing press, 
What was the result? He said, well, I didn't really expect when my dad taught me this, but actually the result has been I have stood before five kings and ate with one. <laughs> In other words, I didn't really believe the Bible, but the Bible actually happened with Benjamin Franklin. His craft and his skillfulness and his craft brought him before great men. Young men, beware of the lure of easy and fast success. Invest in your education. Humble yourself and take the apprenticeship. Put the time and effort into developing a craft that can support you and a future family if you don't have one. Work harder than everyone else. Do the things no one else is willing to do. Take shorter lunch breaks and don't cut corners. I remember my dad taught me this as a young kid. The first day I was out on a job site and I wanted to prove myself. And I was out there, I was trying to, you know, I saw this guy carrying two boards, I'm carrying three. Right, I'm gonna try to do whatever I can to show myself out to these old guys that are working on this job. And they, they took off for lunch and I was broke, so I packed my lunch. <laughs> Peanut butter jelly and an oatmeal cream pie. Oh, that was a good lunch. I still remember it. Come on. Right? And I remember looking down and I had, I, I had, I had you know, I had, they had an hour there going out to lunch somewhere. And I looked down and I had, th- it was been 30 minutes and I was done. I'm like, am I going to sit here and do nothing? No, you know what? I'm just going to get back to work. I just jumped back and started carrying lumber, started moving. And when I, my boss pulled up, I heard him, this is my first day on the job. And I heard him say from the truck, somebody wants a raise. And I thought, actually I do. <laughs> Yeah, I do. So if you want to go high, you must first go low. Second, the second principle we see here is that if God has already given you power, influence, and authority, you must use that power to serve others. If God has already given you power, influence, and authority, you must use that power to serve others. Pastor Doug Wilson in his book on masculinity says that masculinity, and I don't think I've ever heard a better de- definition, masculinity is, quote, the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Yes, I will take the responsibility of that on me. Yes, I will take it on. I will carry the weight. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. And listen, here's another principle. Authority Authority flows to those who take responsibility through sacrificial service like Jesus did. When you stoop and you go low and you take it upon yourself to make things happen, authority flows to people like that. The more responsibility you can carry in your workplace, the more authority your boss is going to give you. Why? They see you handling small things well. You're faithful in a little, God will make you a ruler over much. Right? So we, this, the responsibility, the authority that God's given us, if we're good stewards over that, authority flows to us and God gives us more and more responsibility. Therefore, a man of God comes home from work not to, not to be served, but to serve. After a hard, day, hard day's work, a godly man enters his home not with a list of demands, but with a duty to give back to his family. He comes to ease the burdens of his wife, not add to them. He comes to play with his kids, not send them off to their rooms while he kicks back in the lazy boy. Now listen, this is hard, men. This is difficult. 
Many days I fail myself. But this is our calling as Christian men. God, has, Jesus Christ has come and served us and we are to serve others as a way of life. He's given us the identity of servant. Now very few things cheer my pastor's heart more than seeing men and women who are powerful and successful in the world's eyes stooping on a Sunday morning to serve our kids. Right? Grandparents who have done their time with kids, stooping and serving the least of these in our church family and our kids' ministry on a Sunday morning. Jesus makes it very clear. Let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Here's the principle again. If God has given you power, influence, and authority, you are now to use that power. You are a steward Remember the illustrations that Jesus used in his parables that he hands over certain authority and he hands over certain power and certain talents to some of his servants and then the, the master goes away for a time and when the master comes back, what does he want to find? He doesn't want to find somebody sitting on their talents. He doesn't want to find, he doesn't want to find things the same way he left them. He rebukes those servants and calls them evil. What's, what he wants to find is that his servants were industrious. They, they took the little that they had been given and they multiplied it and made it into much. That's what we're called to do with every gift, talent, power, authority that God's given us. Take it as a steward and multiply it for the kingdom of God. Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That means, obviously, we're not better than Jesus. And if Jesus stooped so low to wash his disciples' feet, what does that mean for us? It means service is going to feel like service sometimes. Service is going to feel like something that's beneath us, something that we've graduated from, something that's no longer necessary. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not beneath him. It's not going to beneath, be beneath you. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, now, and here's, here's the funny thing. I imagine 90% of the room in here already know these things. Oh, we're a servant. We're meant to serve others as a way of life. All right. Jesus doesn't stop there. Look at the statement. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The knowledge isn't the hard part, right? I should probably call that person. I should probably make that meal. I should probably just not complain and just go ahead and do this. I should probably just plow. I should probably just sow. I should probably just... The knowing it is not the hard part. The hard part is, but it's cold outside and that guy should have known better. That's the hard part, right? I don't know. I'm going to pray about it and see if some other neighbor feels compelled to do that. Right? The hard part is actually just doing it. And things, for those of us who like to put them off, well, I'll see tomorrow. I'll check tomorrow. If nobody's plowed by tomorrow, I'll go ahead and do that. Listen, you put off things tomorrow and it just gets more and more difficult. Right? Don't put off today's troubles to tomorrow. It just makes tomorrow more difficult. If you see something in front of you, if God, who is the script writer, who's writing in your story, writes in a difficult situation right in front of you, you're on your way to church and you see somebody go in the ditch. 
That should be a cue to you that God has you in that exact same spot for a reason to help that person. Not, well, I'm on my way to church. I got to go praise the Lord. You can praise the Lord while pulling that guy out of the dirt, ditch, unless you have an electric vehicle or whatever you got, right? (laughs) All right. God is writing our story and he writes in difficult situations like that. And he writes them in so that we can practice what we preach, so we can do what we know. And he says this beautiful word in that scripture. He says this, listen, blessed are you if you do them. He doesn't say anything about blessed if you know them. Blessed if you do them. That word bless, blessed there, it's makarios in the Greek. It also means happy and joyful. I know we have this kind of low view of happiness in our society that's just circumstantial. It's not the biblical view of happiness. It's basically, you were created to do this thing. What a bird must feel like when it pops out its wings and, it's fly, and it flies. It's doing what it was created to do. As an eagle soars on those thermals and it can get higher and higher and higher with, and it's just doing what it was made to do. That it is blessed in its doing. It's happy in its doing. It's joyful in its doing. We were created by God to serve other people and you are blessed if you do it. That means you can find happiness in serving others. Right? Scott mentioned it. You know, a bunch of us went out and, and helped our brother get, get pulled out of a two-foot snowdrift. That's not, it, it, yeah, it was a little difficult. <laughs> it was a little difficult. But, but literally, I'm leaving, and I literally said this to myself. Why do I love doing this so much? Like, I, I would rather do this than sit at home and watch TV. I was telling my son, I'm like, I think I might, we just, just need to drive around and just look for people in the ditch, because it's fun. It's fun, but we might die. That's what makes it fun. <laughs> right? Blessed, happy, joyful if you do them. Now I begin, as I begin to close this sermon, it's important to look at what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, what I am doing now you do not understand. But afterward you will understand. After what? After his death and resurrection. In other words, Jesus' sacrificial service to them, seen in his washing of their nasty feet, was also a foreshadowing of his ultimate service to them that they will see on the cross, that they will see and misunderstand until his resurrection. They don't get it until the resurrection. See, Jesus' humility here is seen when he stoops to wash their feet, but it goes so much farther than that. Philippians 2.8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's hard to wrap our minds around the most powerful man in the universe stooping to wash his disciples' feet. It's even more harder to wrap your mind around that same perfect God-man dying a murderer's death in public execution on a cross. Why would the king of kings not only wash feet, but also die on a rough Roman cross? I think the answers we can see from our text today is in verses 8 through 11. When Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you will have no share with me. So in other words, 
The disciples needed washing, and if they, didn't, if they didn't get washed, they didn't get the benefits of Christ. They weren't going to be in Christ. That means they weren't going to have life and life more abundantly. Simon Peter said, well, don't wash just my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. You are clean, but not every one of you is clean. In other words, the washing of the feet is a symbol of what Jesus will do for them by faith or do for all of us by faith when we put our trust in him for salvation. We know this because he tells us that Judas is not clean even though Jesus washed his feet. So the washing of the feet was just a metaphor pointing towards salvation that's only found by faith through grace, right? Why? Because Judas was not a believer. Judas had no faith. He was an imposter. So what Jesus is saying here is living faith in Jesus makes you clean from all your sins. Clean. Faith in Jesus, in other words, he said, causes you to be born again. Forgiven all your sins, completely clean from all past deeds, made right with God once and for all. Paul will later tell us that this is called being justified by faith. We are made right with God because of Jesus' works and not our own. And that means our salvation can never be taken from us. You have been made clean by Christ and what Christ makes clean, no one, can any, no one can make that thing unclean again. This is true of all the disciples in the room except for Judas. 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, if we ha- say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, Jesus took with him two things to the cross. He took all of his people's sins, everyone that the Father had given him, and he took all of his own personal righteousness. He carried these things to the cross. See, Jesus, by his righteousness, earned nothing but love and exaltation from the Father. But we, through our many sins, have earned nothing but judgment. Well, on the cross, Jesus took the judgment that we deserve so that he could give us his righteousness by faith. This is one of the hardest things to wrap our head around in Christianity. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. That Jesus went low so we could go high. That Jesus took our sin upon himself so that he could gift us his righteousness By faith, as a work of sheer grace. For those who have never accepted that truth and believed in their heart, I offer it to you today. Believe in the Lord Jesus and accept him as Lord by faith. Confess him with your mouth this morning and he can make you clean. Perfectly clean. And for those of us who already have Dwell on that great exchange this morning. He went as low as God could possibly go. Into death 
and hell itself. So that we could go as high as men could possibly go. Into life and life more abundantly. Eternal life with him. Eventually dwelling with him forever. In a totally renewed heaven and earth. This truth is where our joy comes from. This truth. Now listen. As much as you meditate upon what Jesus has done for you, that's where you'll find the power and the authority given to you to go and serve others as a way of life. When you see Jesus washing your feet, when you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, that compels you to go out into the world and serve others as a way of life. Nothing else has that kind of motivating power, that kind of fire behind it that can keep you hot when your heart gets cold. That truth is what enables us to go low like Jesus and serve others as a way of life. Can you imagine what would our cities look like if it was filled with people who knew and believed and lived out this truth? What would our cities look like? That's what we're hoping for. That's what we're believing for. That's, what we're, that's one of the reasons we're making disciples. We have people like this that understand what Jesus Christ has done for them and the identity he's given them by faith, and now they walk it out and they live it out and they bless their neighbors and they serve their city in such a way as Jesus did his disciples. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we are blown away at the way Jesus serves us. Many of us, especially those of us who like to earn things, like to work hard, we want to be the most responsible person in the room. We, like Peter, Jesus would come to us. We'd probably say, no, no, Jesus, not me. I'm working really hard for my righteousness. I'm working really hard to be as clean as I possibly can. I don't need you to clean me. And Jesus, I pray that you'd speak through our self-righteousness this morning. And we'd have a heart change like Peter did in the moment and say, okay, watch the whole thing, Jesus. And then you'd remind us that you already have. On the cross, you paid for our punishment you sealed the love of God in our heart. You sealed our salvation. You caused us to be born again. You give us faith. You give us grace. You give us mercy. You give us so many things that we did not deserve. You give us the righteousness of Christ. So now we're never seen on our own in our own righteousness. You look at us through the perfect righteousness of Jesus, which is a wonderful truth. Lord, help this go from our head to our heart to our hands that we know it, we believe it, and we do it. Let our church be known for our service to one another and our service to the least of these. And Lord, as we come to your table now, on the night that you were betrayed, even with Judas in your midst, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. You stoop to wash, but you stoop even farther by dying for us. And you took the cup full of wine you said, this is the new covenant. In other words, everything goes through me now. No longer just through the old covenant. No longer through the Ten Commandments. No longer through any of those other things. Everything goes through me now. So we come to you this morning. Father of mercies, thank you for this gift of this bread. Which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to, to enable us to eat of it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our Savior. 
We ask you to, to enable us to drink of it in faith and be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord. Father, we want to eat this meal in remembrance of you, Jesus. We want to eat this meal in obedience to you. And we ask for your grace upon grace. In Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen. Amen.